So feet. Feet are, I think by most people's um, uh, evaluation, not the most becoming part of a person. Uh, I have massive feet. Uh, I've always had big feet. I came out of my mother, apparently, with big feet. Um, and um, some people, though, however, have real issues with their feet, right? And it's a good thing that we, in our culture, have socks and shoes and things that cover them up. But there are some people who I've met who, like, you ain't seeing my feet. <laughs> and so I'm like, all right. I'm not that embarrassed by my feet. Um, but there was a time when I was really embarrassed by my feet. This is going back about a decade. And it was wintertime. I was on staff at another church, and uh, we were having a communion service. But at this service, they had, they did communion, and it's called threefold communion. We celebrated it here. And it's uh, from the, the Brethren tradition. And in that tradition, you, have, you start with foot washing, and then you go to the love feast, and then you end up with the bread and cup communion, which most churches have. And so it was time to do the foot washing. And of course, you know, we're used to this. We've done this many times before. But because it was winter, um, I, spent, I spent most of the winter wearing socks. And I had forgotten that about two months earlier, my daughters, who at that time were eight and six, had painted my toenails. Had painted each one a different color, uh, and I didn't bother to take, you know, take the time to get that toenail polish remover. You know, I don't have that. I wasn't going to store and buy it, and I never really thought of it. Right? I only looked at it, you know, periodically. Well, all of a sudden, all of us are in. All the men are in one room. Ladies were in a different place. I think that's because of that foot issue. Uh, and I realized. This is going to be humiliating. I am sitting next to a guy who's going to wash. Actually, I was sitting between uh, two men, uh, both big, burly, Lancaster County men. Uh, and I remember thinking, oh, this is going to change their opinion of me. When I, and so I take, because one of them is going to have to wash my feet, and then I, in turn, am going to have to wash the next one down the line of feet. And so as soon as I took my socks off, one of them looks down and looks at me and goes, so that's how it is. <laughs> so feet. Feet are not uh, one of those things that um, all of us feel super comfortable with. But have you ever thought of feet as a metaphor for the Christian life? Have you ever thought about the activity of feet? as a metaphor for the Christian life. Perhaps you're thinking, hmm, I remember Paul said in Romans chapter 10, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Uh, quoting Isaiah chapter 52, uh, where, the, where the prophet uh, says that it is a beautiful thing. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. Perhaps you think about the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he's talking about church unity and spiritual giftedness there. 
He says, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body. Just because a person doesn't have a certain spiritual gift doesn't mean they're not valuable to what God wants to do in the church. Well, this morning we're going to take a look at how the apostle uses the activity of feet uh, in the second half of the book of Ephesians. as a metaphor for how Christians, we Christians, are to live our lives. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians. Just saying how we are to live our life, for those who've been coming for a while, ought to trigger uh, a bit of recognition that we're at a place, we're at a hinge in the book of Ephesians. The first three chapters we have been looking in to the apostle in his teaching on theology. Uh, I mean, and this is Paul's pattern, that his, he would start off his books with doctrine and teaching, and then this, and then he would allow that to be the platform that leads into how we are to live our lives. Paul's letter neatly breaks, letter to the Ephesians, he's neatly breaks into two parts, doctrine versus, or chapter 1 through 3, and duty, chapters 4 through 6. Doctrine and duty. What we are to believe, what we are to do. What Christ has done, what we are to do in response to what Christ has done for us. Now, so it's a bit of a hinge where we're at today. So, And we're not going to be looking at any particular verse. We're just going to be sort of opening up this whole book, looking at it as a whole again, in preparation for the second half of this book. Now, for some people, I realize that doctrine is a negative term. When we talk about doctrine, or sometimes it'll be said, they are a doctrinal church. You know, they use that kind of uh, arc in their tone of voice. They're doctrinal, as if that is something to be leery of. you know, they will talk about doctrine divides. So doctrine can be given a bad name. But be honest with you, the way the Bible talks about doctrine is in very positive terms. We are to be serious about, about doctrine. Paul tells Timothy that he needs to watch over his doctrine, for by it he will save himself and others. Doctrine, true, correct doctrine, is critical to the health of a church. Uh, what some people, what some Christians want is they, they want to just know how to live their lives. And of course, that's important too. But just how to live your life, talking about how do you should live your life without a foundation is going to be super squishy and super hard to defend. So the apostle always builds his exhortation upon the foundation of his theology. Now, so far... In our study of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3 up to this point, we've, we've had 24 messages. So now we're going into chapters 4 through 6. Don't know if we're going to have 24 more messages. But the point is, is that here at One City, we want to be serious about both. We want to be serious about doctrine. But now we're pivoting. We want to be serious about how we live in light of that. So today I want to give just a an overview of what is the main points of doctrine that Paul has taught in chapter 3 and then what are the four main activities of the feet that Paul uses 
show us how we are to live our lives. So let's talk about the theology as a refresher. The first thing he hits at in chapter 1 uh, is that you as a Christian possess everything eternal, every eternal blessing that God has through union with Jesus. And that, doesn't, that means if you have been a believer for two minutes or a believer for two decades, it doesn't matter. If you are united with Christ, you have every eternal blessing that God has because you're united with Christ. Now Paul highlights, uh, he, the way he does this is he highlights a, um, something that's important for us to understand. So I want you to take your finger, we've done this before, and I want you just to draw an imaginary circle, right? Draw an imaginary circle. You see there's a boundary there. With that circle that you just drew, there's an inside and there's an outside. There is a boundary. And Paul uses the terminology of being in Christ. And he uses this over and over in the first chapter of Ephesians, but he uses it all throughout his letters in the New Testament. This idea of being in Christ. Christ is the difference. And what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 is that in Christ, inside this boundary, which is Christ, are every, is every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Which means that outside of Christ, there are no spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. There, and what I think that means for kind of understanding, there are no eternal blessings of that God has outside of union with Christ, outside of G, a relationship with Jesus. I say that because there are many blessings that people have who care nothing about Jesus. Big homes, um, happy families, good grades. Those things are common grace. Those things belong because God is good to all people in some way. But there are blessings that God reserves for only those who are united to Jesus. And those blessings, he calls them in heavenly places, I think that's Paul's way of saying, these are eternal, because nice homes, and good grades, and good families, that's time bound. That ain't lasting forever. But the blessings that are really important are found in one place, and that's in Christ. Now another thing that we need to understand about this idea of being in Christ is that Every person who has ever lived, is living today, or will ever live, in any country, any culture, any century, whenever, is in one of two places. They are in Christ, where all the blessings are found, or they are not. Which is important, because there's people in this room, there's people watching right now. Are you in Christ? That's what you need to know. Now, Paul answers that question in chapter 1, verse 13, that he answers the question, how do you know if you are in Christ? This is critical. And the way he answers that is that they are, they, these are people who have heard the gospel, the message that Christ came from heaven, lived a perfect life, died on the cross in place of sinners, was buried and resurrected. They've heard the gospel. They have believed in Christ, and as a result of believing are Holy Spirit. So, how do you know if you're in Christ? Well, have you heard the gospel of God's grace? That you can't save yourself. That 
your good deeds really not only won't save you, but they can actually harden your heart to what God wants to do in your life. But if you will simply put your faith in Christ, simple faith in Jesus who died on the cross in your place and then rose from the dead so you wouldn't have to fear death, if you will believe that, simple truth, you can be forgiven, saved, and placed in Christ. Paul, at the, be, at the end of chapter 1, knows that this news, this good news, is so different than anything else in the world. Uh, so different, so, uh, so gracious, honestly, that people will reject it. So he prays. He prays for the believers at the end of chapter 1 because they need to understand this message is truly incredible. The second doctrinal position that Paul highlights in chapters 1 through 3 is that God in his love, I've hinted at this already, but God in his love has, and I'm going to emphasize radically, he has radically rescued his his people. God in his love has radically rescued his people. This is found in chapter 2. Verses 1 to 10. Paul, recognizing that some people can pervert even the best news. You ever known that? You get some good news, and then it gets passed on. It gets passed on. Oh, that's not what we were talking about. Paul recognizes that people can pervert even the greatest news. So he goes on to describe the salvation. And the first thing that he describes in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 is, what was it really like outside of Christ? All of what you want eternally is in Christ. What was it like outside of Christ? And you see this in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. When he says, we were spiritually dead. We were just sick. We were just infirm. We were just spiritually lethargic. We were dead in our sin. He said also that we were passively conformed to this world's past. We were following the course of this world. The third thing he says of those who are outside of Christ is that we have a devilish master. That we are following the prince of the power of the air. That's what everybody, and this is interesting because when people think this is one of media and Hollywood's uh, and great uh, victories on trying to pervert the uh, the message of the gospel is they, they create uh, the devil's influence to be like the really, really horrible stuff, right? But truly, to follow the prince of the power of the air, which is another name for Satan, means that you just go your own way. Isaiah said in chapter 53, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have gone to our own on our own course. That's what it means to be following the prince of the power of the air. We have a devilish master who is who is content for someone to be a, a violent, hardened criminal as well as a nice, unbelieving, moral churchgoer that doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't care as long as we're following his path. The fourth thing that Paul says is that we are a slave to our emotions. We're living in the passions of our flesh. Before we are united with Christ, 
That's what we do. We, we are enslaved to the passions. We're enslaved to our emotions. And then the last thing, the fifth thing, and maybe you could probably make the argument that this summarizes all of them, but it amplifies all of them. We are under God's judgment. Outside of Christ, we are outside of God's grace. We are under his judgment. We are, Paul says, children of wrath, like the rest of them. Verse 4, though, starts with amazing, two amazing words, but God. Aren't you thankful that sometimes when the bad news just seems overwhelming, there's that word, but, but God. This is true, but God. But God, in rich mercy and love, not because he had to, but because he wanted to, stepped in to this world and rescued people. And he has and is undoing all that sin and our selfish desires and then the devil had enslaved us. But God. You see, God has radically rescued us. And it's all his grace. We didn't earn it. And because we didn't earn it, this is important. You can't boast. You can't. Paul makes that that clear in verses 8, 9, and 10 of chapter 2. You can't boast about this. Because, I mean, you can't boast in yourself. You can boast in Jesus. You can boast in God. You can't even boast in the good works that you do as a result of it because God is the one who prepared them ahead of time for you to walk in them. So we boast in God even in the ways as, as Christians He uses us. So the first doctrinal thing that Paul highlights one is that you possess every spiritual blessing, every eternal blessing through union with Christ. The second thing is that God in love has radically rescued all of his people through Christ. And then the third one, God, and we spent a lot of time on this, God is creating one church. One church united together in spite of their diversity. And so we see this in, from chapter 2, verse 11, all the way through the end of chapter 3. Now, so many Christians are, th for everything I've talked about from chapter 1 up to chapter 2, verse 10, about salvation by grace through faith alone, Christ alone, all, I mean, we rejoice in these truths, and we're thankful for the way God has radically rescued for them. But the sad thing is that we oftentimes, to our detriment, we think of these in individual terms. We think of these as only like in like me and Jesus, with a me and Jesus mentality. Uh, we talk about having a personal relationship with God through Jesus, and there's truth in that, but it's not all the truth, right? It's not all the truth. God saves us out of something, and he saves us into something. And one of the things that he saves us into is into real relationships, a real family, his family, his family is gloriously diverse. Gloriously diverse. 
in background, in ethnicity, in language, in all kinds of ways to be diverse. God saves us out of something, but into something. And there are ways to be diverse, and some of those are really highlighted in our world today, which God's not, those are sinful ways of being diverse. But I'm talking about the, the diversity that God creates. Now, in missions, when we think about missions, we get really excited about the diversity of the church, right? So, like, you in the mission field, you hear about Papua New Guinea and this tribe coming, this this tribe coming to hear the gospel and embracing Christ, or you hear about uh, this ethnic group uh, in China that is hearing the gospel, or you, you hear about all. The, and this is this is stuff that I've heard. I mean, all of the work that God is doing in Iran among the Persian people in building the church, most of it is totally unheard of, but it is happening in Afghanistan. It's happening. I know people who are on the ground in those places, and it's happening. And we, we hear about that kind of diversity. I mean, that fires us up. It fires us up when we hear about God's work in Brazil. When we start to think, though, about diversity within a local that gets a little harder. I mean, we love the fact that God's diversity has not only included us because we aren't Jews, most of us. I don't think anyone here is from a Jewish background. And so we are, uh, we're thankful because that's included us. But when we think about it, the diversity within a local church, and we think about how we need to, we're going to be rubbing shoulders with people who are different than us. About Issues that are important to us, like parenting, or alcohol, or politics, or homeschooling versus public versus private. I mean, all kinds of different philosophies that people have, right? And you're all in one family, one church, local church family. That starts to get a little... Yeah, it's hard to celebrate that because you're sort of it's not comfortable. Let's celebrate the diversity. So what here's what happens. This is what happens. We celebrate God's work of diversity around the world. But we become these little homogenous pods. But from the very beginning we've tried, we've wanted, we've desired that that would not be true of one city church. So we're trusting the God. And his will will guide us through that. Knowing how hard diversity is to overlook, the apostle in chapter 2 uses Hebrew terminology to dismantle prejudice and to discuss the nature of the New Testament church. He talks about uncircumcision, talks about the commonwealth of Israel, the covenants of that others were had no hope and without God in this world. He talked about this dividing wall, which was actually something that existed in the temple in the first century. He talks about the law of commandments, strangers and aliens at Holy Temple. These are all Jewish concepts that the apostle uses to dismantle the prejudice primarily of the Jewish people towards the non-Jewish people. And what he says in chapter 2, verse 16 is so powerful. He says that in Jesus Christ, he has done away with this separation through the cross, making the two one. And what we could say is that Jewish 
part of the two that Paul's talking about, you can break that up into a million different subcategories and say, he has made us through the cross one. He has made us one. Paul goes on to say four different times, he calls this a mystery, a mysterion. We talked about this. This is more of a uh, idea of a, a surprise, that Jesus is the surprise that, that brings people from all kinds of diverse backgrounds into one family and says, I'm Lord over all of you. So let's work it out. Paul ends with prayer, chapter 3, that Christians would understand that all of this is because of God's love. May this love, undeserved and overflowing, unite all of his people. And he says, to him who's able to do immeasurably more than what we could ask or imagine. Basically saying, if this is going to happen, God's got to do this, because only he can do this. So this is the essence of the theology to the Ephesians, and it matters. It's why we've spent so much time on this. It's the foundation for following his uh, exhortations, which are coming in chapters 4 through 6. So chapter 4 becomes this hinge from doctrine to duty. And it's even seen in the Greek verse that uh, Paul chooses to use. In the, in the first three chapters, almost all of the verbs are in the indicative sense, which means this is what is true. But in chapters 4 to 6, they're in the imperative, which means this is what you should do. Even the verbs show it. So this is where Paul turns to the metaphor of the feet to make his point. For the sake of time, I'm going to move through these quickly. We're going to be we're going to be moving through these in the weeks to come. But he uses the term walk and stand in the chapters four, five, and six. He uses this idea of walking and standing as a metaphor for how we are to live out our lives. In the ancient world, there were no bicycles, there were no cars or airplanes. If you wanted to get somewhere, you either rode on an animal who walked, or you walked. Everybody walked. And so walking becomes a metaphor for how you conduct your life, how you live your life. So, what is the first exhortation the Apostle gives? Chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. Walk in gospel-centered unity. Jesus died to have a united family, so walk in it. Walk in gospel-centered unity. As Christians, we are to sh what we share in common is way bigger than what divides us. And so he uses in chapter 4, verses 3 and following, the term one over and over. It's actually the reason we call one city church, one body. One spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father and all. What unites you, Christians, is way more important than what divides you. So maintain the unity of the Spirit. And then he goes on to say that he's given the fivefold ministry to the church, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, in order to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And what I want you to see is that all of these are what he gives to the church those who teach, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, word-based ministries, and their job is to equip others. So our unity must be founded on the teaching. 
This teaching allows us to grow together. Teaching which recognizes bad, because there is bad doctrine. He says Christians in chapter 4, he says Christians, some Christians are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. That's in verse 14. There, so there is some bad doctrine, and that teaching ministry is to help us recognize it, but it's also to recognize what is good. Why from the very beginning we've had an emphasis on at One City Church. The second exhortation that the Apostle gives is that we are to walk in Christ's exalting transformation. It saddens me, it always has, from the very beginning, when I hear people who talk about being a follower of Jesus. But you look at their lives. There's, no, there's nothing conspicuous about Jesus, about them. There's nothing transformed. I remember that from the very beginning when I, got, when I first had gotten saved, and talking with people, so excited about my faith, and others saying, yeah, that happened to me. And I'm like, well, hold on, you were hanging out with me when I wasn't saved. Why? Because they were not walking in Christ's exalting transformation. Were they truly followers? I don't know. What I see here is that over and over the apostle is saying normal Christian life is to be transformed. God, or Paul spends significant time not suggesting that people should be transformed, but charging, commanding, you could say, using the imperative tense, to walk in the newness that Christ purchased for them. Now it's important to know that God get saved. God doesn't remove our sin nature. So we have to actively pursue it. We have to actively pursue our transformation. And I'm excited because when we get to this, he lays out a three-phase process for how Christians can change and grow. And this is so important because they feel stuck. And they wonder, well, what do I need to get over? They want to be transformed. Well, he talks about it, about putting off the old man and then being renewed in the spirit of your mind, and then putting on Christ, the new man, putting on the new man. So that's the second exhortation, is that we are to walk in Christ's exalting transformation. The third exhortation that the apostle gives us, chapter 5, verse 15, through chapter 6, verse 9, is that we are to walk in spirit-empowered harmony. Spirit-empowered you see, this transformation is not doesn't just happen. Remember Paul's prayer at the end of chapter 3, verse 16? He said he prayed that they would be strengthened with power through God's Spirit in our inner being. Paul returns to this here in chapter 5. says that we need to be filled with the Spirit. Now that's something that's gotten hijacked. What does being filled with the Spirit. What he, he goes on to describe is that when people are filled with the Spirit, it's going to overflow to your relationships. It's going to overflow to husbands and wives. It's going to overflow to parents and children. It's going to overflow to slaves and masters of the first century. We can extrapolate and say within our work relationships. Spirit-filled Christians live 
lives where relationships represent Jesus, not self-centered or secretive or divisive ways. So being filled with the Spirit is not essentially about expressing some Holy Spirit giftedness, but it's about God's desire to strengthen us to live in harmonious relationships. And then the fourth exhortation, first three were about walking, the fourth one is about standing, taking a stand. As we live out our life in the kingdom of God, we see this in chapter 6 through the end of the book, as we live out our life in the kingdom of God, we must remember that there is an alternate domain. This is not just psychology. This is not just say, well, we're doing this because it feels better than all the other alternatives. No, there is an alternative domain and there is, a, there is an enemy, Satan, and demonic activity are real. They're not fantasy. And Paul reminds us that when it comes to this battle, we are not to run in fear, but we are to stand in courage. Stand. And the protection and the armor that we have while we live in this world where evil exists is God's truth. God's truth. And his other provisions, truth, righteousness, the gospel of grace, faith, salvation, the word of God, praying in the spirit. And as we use these, we are wrestling against the evil forces in this world. So what we often, as Christians, we often hear about the spiritual armor of God. We've got a poster of it in the kids' ministry room. And we sort of think of this as a tack-on, right? So, oh yeah, I want to tell them about you know, spiritual warfare. But it's not a tack on. It is in the flow of everything Paul has said all throughout Ephesians. It's a critical aspect of, what a, of how a church is to exist in a world that is still somewhat under the control of the prince of the power of the air, Satan. We live in a world where Satan is active. He's roaming around seeking whom he can devour, Peter tells us. And so we are to live with the mentality that we're, this is a battle. So this is a summary of how we're to live life, and it's a summary of how, for God's glory, we can live as a united church where we are. So let me conclude, and I want to invite Tyler to come up to lead us in our closing song. We're going to sing In Christ Alone one more time. This is where we're going in the months to come. I'm looking forward to it. If you personally have heard the gospel of salvation in Christ, and you have believed, I want to remind you, you are among the most blessed people who have lived in all of human history. You have all of God's eternal blessing. So what I want to ask is, what can you be doing, Christian, to fight for the unity of our church and to expand the influence of Christ in this world, whether it's in our city or whether it's around the world. And then lastly, for those perhaps who have never believed the gospel, maybe you're hearing me as I preach online, you're watching online, or maybe you're sitting here in this room and you have never trusted Jesus Christ. You look at your life and you say, there's no transformation there. Jesus is sort of a tack on, but he's not the core this salvation that Paul describes doesn't really represent my life. I say, 
you need to check and see, does Christ dwell within you? And if he doesn't, if you fear that in any way he does not, you've never experienced the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look to him. Don't try to save yourselves by being a, a decent person. Look to Christ alone. Only he can save. Let's sing together our closing song, In Christ Alone.